You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, everybody, it's Ken Davenport, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to the Producers Perspective Podcast. You're now listening to a special mini-series, the Producers Perspective Podcast, live from the pandemic. These are recordings directly from the Facebook Live series. I started during the coronavirus pandemic, where every single night I interviewed a Broadway luminary and chatted about what they were going through, how they were dealing with it, and what they expected Broadway and theater to look like when it was all over. So join us for this very special episode of the Producers Perspective podcast, live from the pandemic. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. All the way from Los Angeles. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Jason Alexander. Welcome, Jason. Hello, sir. Hello. 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 So you are in Los Angeles. What have you been? What have you been up to? What have you been doing? You mean prior to the end of the world? Yeah, like where, where were you? The end of the world. <laughs> it really seems that way. Where were you when the virus hit the fan? As I like to say, like where was the moment? I had just, so I had done a, um, a seven city speaking slash comedy tour in Australia when the word was just coming over about this thing in Wuhan, China. Now, what I have to ask, in Australia, you were just, were you doing your concert tour or were you doing? No, it's, I have this really interesting tour that I was, I was supposed to be touring the East Coast right now. I had a seven city tour, uh, part of a speaker series in uh, Baltimore and Jersey and Philly and Pittsburgh and Boston and uh, and that all went down because of COVID. But we just rescheduled for November. It's um, it's a it's a kind of an interesting show, or at least it's interesting for me. It it, it began its life as a Q and A show, a, a straight Q and A show, and then it became a Q and A with comedy, and then it became a Q and A with comedy and music, and it has evolved into a thing where we put topics up either in the program or we project them on a screen behind me. And the audience gets to pick and choose. It, depending on what they pick, we get through six, seven, eight, nine of these things in a session. And um, it's it, we, we only talk about the things that are intriguing to them, the things they want to talk mm -hmm. about. Some of them are funny. Some of them are not. Some of them are musical. Some of them are not. And, and it's uh, it's always different for me. I never know what they're going to pick. And it's it's been a lot of fun. So in Australia, we did that. And... Um, 
there is there, Seinfeld is certainly one of the categories up on the, uh, the screen, and it, invariably it comes up. So uh, we we do a nice little chunk of Seinfeld questions, and everyone gets to broom that out. And it, it's just been it's been great fun. It's an easy show to do, and and seems to be a crowd pleaser. What I love is in your in your post Seinfeld life, you just seem to be doing, but you've come back to the theater doing more live entertainment stuff than ever before. Well, I never wanted to leave it, Ken. I, I know I've got like half this sunshine in me. It's going to shift as we go. So um, I'm, I'm a living Godspell poster. Um, uh, yeah, I, I my fantasies when I was a kid growing up in New Jersey and I realized I would like to be an actor, it was all about the theater. It was all about doing stuff in New York and dreaming about getting to Broadway. I had no fantasies about film or television. And when the, all that lovely stuff started to happen, I, I never had any faith in it. Uh, you know, So I thought, all right, I'll go to LA and I'll do this pilot and I'm sure nothing will happen and I'll come back and do, I'll get back to the theater. Uh, so. The glorious thing about the success of Seinfeld was it kind of was theater. Yeah, there were cameras there, but it was a live audience. and We did it like a play, and it wasn't glaringly different from anything I'd done in New York. Um, but, yeah, I find if I don't use my live performance muscles for a while, I start to doubt them, and I never want to doubt them. So I keep, I keep, uh, I keep a foot somehow in the, in the pool and come back to it as often as I can. You said that when you went to, you never expected anything to happen of all this film and TV stuff. Do you think that actually helped with your success there? You're like, ah, whatever. I'm just going to go out there and try this. Or I'm going to do this stuff. I'm not pinning my hopes and dreams on it. So it, it helped. Sure, it helped with my success as a human being because I, I, I never, and I still don't really kind of buy into this whole allure of show business. Most of my friends, a lot of my friends are in the business, but they're not star names. And a lot of them are, uh, you know, crew members or writers or, um, so the, the glitz and glamor of Hollywood never struck me. I wasn't, even as a kid, I, I wasn't focused on film and focused in that way to go, I'm going to be a movie star, you know? Uh, and I knew well, by the time I was a teenager, yes, there's a, there's a glamor to being, in the New York theater, but it ends at the stage door. <laughs> Life as a stage actor doing it a week in New York, uh, you know, you're still taking out the trash and riding the subways and you know, getting yelled at and spit at and you know, as you pass the bums on the street. And so, you know, it's just not a, it's not a glamorous lifestyle. So, um, so it kept me rooted and it kept me healthy as all this other great stuff happened. And, uh, and hopefully it helped, my wife and I keep our kids on track as they were growing up. And, um, but yeah, it, it, it's, it, it's great. It's great to enjoy every project for the values that it has and for the people that you get to work with. But, you know, we're just telling stories. At the end of the day, we're just telling stories. There's nothing to get excited about here. We're just, you know. <laughs> I love that idea of it ends at the stage door because I had – I've worked on so many shows and I actually love to watch these folks come out and they're mobbed at the stage door. People are mobbed and then they walk away and they're not mobbed. They literally go down the subway. They're like, no one talks to them. I ride the subway in New York. When I'm in New York, I actually ride the subway. Nobody, if I walk down the street, I sometimes get stopped, you know? If I ride the subway, nobody says boo to me. I think it's because they must be going, 
nah. Can't be. <laughs> but I know all my friends that work, you know, in the theater. They're they're either commuting in on buses, or they're taking the fast train, or they're getting around on you know on the subways. So. So I, one of the things that I loved about meeting you for the first time is that you were nothing like George, just nothing like it. I was like, this guy is actually one of the smartest guys. And it's true. I mean, your insight, not only into theater, but into the world. So I want to ask you your perspective on what do you think, how does this change entertainment in the future? What do you, do you think audiences are going to rush back? My instinct tells me people will want to rush back, but it will be mitigated by reality, especially in the world that you and I play in. What will the economics of live entertainment look like on the other side of this? Because our economy has been so devastated, people's individual incomes and um, they're just their economic outlooks are so uncertain right now that the notion of disposable dollars for entertainment uh, right now seems outlandish. How quickly that may change uh, is anybody's guess. So I, I think the, the world of, of Broadway is going to be not what you and I experienced for quite some time, both in how the audience returns, how quickly they return, what the diversity and, and demographics of that audience are, and how much financial resources we have to work with and they have to work with. I think that may all be a brave new world for some time. But I think the minute they they take off the chains and say, have at each other, we're all going to want to flock back together. And live performance is one of the best ways to do that. Do you think we're they're going to be craving a different type of entertainment? Is it sitcoms, do they become the thing to see in a way, or big musical comedies or big slapstick, forget about your troubles? Yeah, it, it's a great question. I w if I knew the answer. Um, so I have a couple of projects for New York for the theater that I'm directing. And uh, one of them is pretty far off. It's a, it's a musical I'm developing. But the other two are, are actually right now looking to attach casts and get a theater because they're both really viable for when New York opens up again. One of them is a really dark comedy and one of them is a very silly light comedy. And the dark comedy, I think, was way ahead of the game coming into this pandemic. My guess, although we're pursuing them both equally, is I have a sneaking suspicion the silly frothy comedy may jump ahead at the end of this because I think if people are going to risk going back out and spending dollars for the theater, they're going to want to have a fun time rather than a profound time or a, um, um, you know, even being stirred by, by a, a play is probably not initially what they're going to want to experience. So I think, I think musicals have a great shot. I think comedies have a great shot, but unless you're, unless you have noticed something different from me, comedies have, been few and far between in New York these days. Nobody's really writing them for the theater. Certainly no one seems to be producing them for the theater. Tell me a little bit about this transition to, you mentioned directing. Mm -hmm. uh, why you wanted to pursue this, another big challenge at this point in your life, in your career, uh, when you could sit back and choose projects, you went up and did, I, I know, I, I love you, you emailed me like, Ken, I'm doing the last five years up in Syracuse. And I was like, 
wait, what? So I love that you're doing all these different and unique things. So, but, but why? Like, what about directing made you want to go down this path now? So even when I was a student in college, a, 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 an acting student in college, I had professors that said, have you thought about directing? Because I, I tended to see stories and material from a macro perspective. So if I was going to be in a play, I would read the play, I would see what the play was about, I would see what my character was to that you know, macro storytelling, and then I'd kind of give you that very efficiently and very quickly. I was a director's dream because you know I knew what they needed and I would show up and do that. But my acting teachers would say, you know, the greatest actors see the entire piece through their character's eyes and nothing else. They're always looking for the thing that isn't there, the thing the, the writer doesn't know, the thing the director doesn't know. And I was, uh, I, was, I was less good at that than I was at the other. So I began directing right out of college. I began directing in college. I loved it. Uh, I loved the collaborativeness of it. Um, and then when, when the theater was taken away during the Seinfeld years and my kids were young, even in the breaks, from filmed stuff, you know, eight a week is is the antithesis of a good parent schedule. Because every time your kids are coming in, you're going out. We could afford, thank goodness to Mr. Seinfeld and company, uh, to not have to make a living doing that. And I kept theater more or less at arm's length while my kids were little. But during that time, what did make sense was direct the thing, that's much less of a time commitment and then you can step back and the piece goes on. So I began stepping it up there. When Seinfeld ended and then my follow-up series were not successful, there are more images of me as George out there than anything else I've done, even though I've been doing this for 40 years. And as a result of that, the, the kinds of roles I was being offered started to get really kind of not interesting. And the choice was there were two other things other than acting that I got really excited about. One was teaching and one was directing. Um, and the directing world kind of opened up. There were things I wanted to do. There were pieces that kind of sang to me or called to me. And uh, I decided to start pushing that as hard as I could. And I, I, I started it actually in Seinfeld. I, I got into the Director's Guild doing an episode of Seinfeld and then I did some more television. It took me a while to get back to to theater where I actually know what I'm doing. I know jack squat about what to do with a camera, but I have a pretty good idea of what to do with theater. So uh, it just took a while. And uh, the, the projects that came my way as a director for now and not always and, not, and hopefully not forever, but right now in, in the recent past, the, director, the directing projects were much more interesting and engaging than any of the acting offers. And, and so you go with that. But, you know, for me, a career is you just keep moving. You don't get stuck. If you were producing Jason Alexander the musical, who would write it, direct it, and sing in it, then would it be a comedy? I would like to believe that it would be a musical because I've been singing longer than I've been talking. So um, I would like to believe my life had the sophistication to attract a Stephen Sondheim. I would like to believe that. <laughs> Uh, I would like to believe that it has anthems in it that Pasek and Paul could dig into. Ooh. 
I would like to believe that it's quirky enough that Jason Robert Brown could make a couple of contributions. And I got into theater and acting because of Pippin. So if Stephen Schwartz is not involved, something has gone terribly, terribly, terribly wrong. So if I can create a collaboration between those four you know, individuals and teams, that would be fantastic. I would love to see, you know who'd be a great me? Alexander Gemignani. Oh. Great me. Or Danny Burston. Uh, Danny would, would play me exquisitely. He'd be a better me than me, is, is my fear. <laughs> Do you have any tips for an aspiring writer or actor on how to eject, interject the right amount of funny in a scene? How do you be funny, Jason? Tell us all. Teach us. Um, so here's here's the truth about me and funny. When I when I went to college, I didn't think of myself as funny at all, and I didn't think that my life or career would be centered around comedy. I I I was inspired by great dramatic musical and non musical actors. And I, I was thinking more of a classical or classical dramatic career. In my sophomore year of college, a, a professor of mine by the name of James Spruill, who is no longer with us, pulled me into his office. He's a very large, basso, African-American man. And he said, I know that your heart and soul is Hamlet, and you would be a profound Hamlet, but you will never play Hamlet. So you best get good at Falstaff. <laughs> and that was, and I, so what Jim Sproul did for me that I was not able to do is go, you're five feet, five inches tall, you're 30 pounds overweight, and you're already going bald, think comedy. Uh, <laughs> and he was right, and I, I bless him every day. Um, the right amount of comedy in a scene. In drama, there is great conflict. People really working against each other at enormous odds. I, when I was doing Seinfeld, nothing that happened to George and nothing George did was funny to him. To him, it was all life and death serious. And every now and then, someone could hold the mirror up to him. And George was savvy enough to go, I look like an idiot. And he, could, he had a small ability, as Larry David does, who I was using as my role model, to laugh at himself. But if you allow your characters either them or the people around them to see the silliness in how much we, we lose our minds for what we think is desperately important. If, you, if everything is desperately important and you don't have somebody go, but is it, or aren't you, coming, aren't you a little over the top right now? Then nothing is desperately important because to everyone, everything they need in that moment is desperately important. You know, um, so what you may want to do if you're a writer is to look for what what is tragically funny about your character? What what you know, what what is part of the when we talk about um, what makes for great storytelling is the character can't just get what they want. There's an obstacle. And if the obstacle they have to overcome reflects some deep inability or character flaw in them, you have great chemistry for a comedy right there. So if you know if you're a hitman who gets who has flashbacks of, of things, horrible things he's done and he can't sleep at night because he's haunted, it sounds incredibly dark. But that's what Barry is all about. That's right. why Barry is such a great comedy. Right. These, these horrific flashbacks of what he has done and how it haunts him. 
and how it, you know, he goes to the theater to, to stop being Barry. He wants to be an actor so he doesn't have to be Barry anymore. Incredibly funny. Comedy is sitting all around the darkness. Mm-hmm. And all you have to do is, is just go, why can't my character get there? What can I give them that is fun, that keeps them from getting what they want? And how much are they self-aware or how many people around them are self-aware? And that's all it is. If they if they work and speak and act from their honest point of view, you should be able to get a a a, a perfectly balanced sense of humor into your dramatic writing. Hmm. Said the non-writer. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here and for inspiring and educating us all. It's been my pleasure, my friend. Thanks again for listening to this very special episode of the Producers Perspective podcast live from the pandemic. If you enjoyed tonight's episode, do us a favor and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And hey, while you're at it, leave us a big standing ovation review, will you? And check out my Facebook page at facebook.com backslash Ken Davenport for more live stream interviews just like this one. Except on the Facebook page, you can actually see our faces. So check it out at facebook.com backslash Ken Davenport. We'll see you there. Getting the band back together. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.